The following podcast contains subject matter that may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The views and opinions expressed in the program do not necessarily reflect those of WTVA or its sister station, WLOV. It is not a production of WTVA 9 News. On the afternoon of Thursday, November 9th, 2017, I recorded my voiceover for the second episode of this podcast. In one section, I said the following, Most of us are fortunate. Most of us can only imagine what it must be like to lose a child. A few short hours later, I was terrified that I was about to find out what it's like to lose a child. We've talked a little about coincidence on this program, and we'll talk about it a lot more. And there is a, for me, spine-tingling coincidence connecting my own daughter's story to the story of Lee Ochi, and I'll get to that by the end of this show. But right now, let me back up. One day... When I went to pick up my kids for the weekend, their mother warned me about the multitude of bruises on Sugarlump's body. Yes, I call my little girl Sugarlump, always have, always will. My ex was worried. I'd think the bruises were a result of physical abuse she was administering. Despite our differences though, I knew better than to suspect that would ever be the case. We both chalked the bruising up to my baby's lifestyle. She's a roughhouser, hanging upside down from tree limbs, skateboarding, turning cartwheels and flips, hunting down snakes, lizards, and turtles with her best bud. Footnote, if you're not from Mississippi, uh, no, that's not typical little girl behavior in Mississippi either. Sugarlump's always had scrapes, marks, blemishes. She just happened to have a lot at that time, right? Still, that weekend I had the talk with her, the one where I say, if someone is hurting you, and saying you've got to be quiet about it if they say they'll hurt me or your mother if you tell us, it's not true. The only way to make it stop is to tell me. I was about 99% certain based on her responses that she truly had no idea where the bruises were coming from. When I talked to my mom, she said, yeah, probably nothing, but you should get her checked out. You never know, Jason. It could be leukemia. Now you never want to believe it's even possible that your child could have cancer. But that suggestion haunted me over the next few days when Sugarlump was back with her mom. Why not go ahead and check her out? Had I ever gotten a significant bruise and not had any memory of the cause? Had I ever even gotten a bruise as bad as the one on my girl's hip? As I recorded my audio on that Thursday, that sinking feeling I'd been having became overwhelming. I told my ex I was coming to take Sugarlump to the ER. They went ahead and checked her blood, and she was diagnosed with AML. Everyone had a million questions. I had one. Is my daughter going to die? Now, two months removed from the diagnosis, I know my girl is going to be okay. More on that and the coincidence later. Right now, we're going back into the case of a 13-year-old girl who disappeared. Lee Ochi left behind a blood-stained nightgown. Her mother reported her missing. Detectives investigated. Many in Tupelo suspected the mother, Vicky. And later, Vicky said she realized who took Lee. This man 
was convicted of assaulting a girl roughly Lee's age, and he was connected to the family through circumstances one might consider the safest and most loving possible. Their connection was church, and Vicki Yarborough had begun preaching an unchanging message about Oscar Kearns. made contact with someone who is very passionate about the mystery of Liochi. We have decided essentially to combine our efforts and partner on the project, which will extend beyond this podcast. She is a writer and a mother and a documentarian, and her name is Lauren Ochi. After my uh, dad divorced Vicky, he married my mom, and I was their first child together. Forgive the audio quality of our first recorded phone call. It was a little spotty. What was clear? Lauren's feelings about her sister's case. This should have been solved. Lauren was barely a toddler when Lee vanished. And she still imagines what that relationship could have been. I, mean, I like to think that it, we would be as close as most sisters are, even given the circumstances that we would have lived in different homes. I asked my mom, you know, how, how was you with me? Because I was just a baby. And she was like, yes, she liked you. One of the most interesting things for me about producing this podcast is being forced to really look at things from the perspective of multiple people. When you think of the way it all would affect Lauren's mother, Kathy, for example, you would think, well, she'd be very upset. She would be incredibly sad for her husband, Donald, Lee's father. She would hate not knowing what happened to Lee, would miss her. Talking to Lauren really crystallized the permanent impact of the disappearance. My mother from a very early age instilled that in me because she was afraid. My mom was out there with my dad in the search parties, you know. So she, she told me, I mean, real, real early, she would say to me, if anybody ever tries to take you, fight them, grab them, get their skin and your nails. In fact, it actually kept me from running away when I was really little because you know, I got in trouble. You know, all kids, when they get in a lot of trouble with their parents, they run away. 
So I was trying to like, I remember I was trying to like set up one of those brooms like you see in cartoons with a little cloth around <laughs> toys in it. I was trying to do that. And literally at like, I had to have been in like around third grade or before, even earlier. And uh, I remember literally the thought entered my mind, oh, I can't run away because of uh, the people who take kids. Lauren obviously has a lot of reasons for wanting to become involved, wanting to work on this project. But perhaps her biggest reason is what it means to her father. I can't even imagine how my dad really feels about this. But I want him to know that, you know, everybody will do as much as they can forever. Since forming a sort of partnership with me, Lauren Ochi has been investigating Vicky's allegations against Oscar Kearns. She's made contact with some people who spent a great deal of time with the man and with Lee. But first, to help provide some exposition on Kearns, here's WTVA 9 News reporter Morgan Berger. Vicky's suspect was not only a Sunday school, but a vacation Bible school teacher that also lived in West Tupelo, just about a mile away from the Honey Locust home. Vicki said Lee would never open the door to a stranger, so anyone entering the house without breaking in would have to be somebody that she knew and trusted. Oscar Kearns, better known as Mike, also shared Lee's affinity for horses. He rode them at the same stables where Lee would often go. But none of that information means much until we look at what became of Kearns after Lee's disappearance. Kearns is currently in parchment after pleading guilty to kidnapping a Union County couple in 1999 and raping the wife. Yeah, that's bad. And that's why he's still in prison. But this is not his first stint in lockup. The first time he did time was for an offense that rings a lot more familiar. Less than nine months after Lee vanished, Kearns drove to Memphis, a short trip north from Tupelo, and kidnapped a ninth grade girl he had met through the church. She was alone at her house shortly after 7 a.m. when he showed up and told her he would drive her to school. And he did drive her to school. But before that, he took her to a remote spot and sexually assaulted her. Tupelo police, along with the FBI, have attempted several times to interview Kearns, but he's refused to talk to them. So during the initial investigation, he teased investigators by agreeing to take a polygraph if his attorney said it was okay. Then his attorney, Joey Langston, shot down the plan. Again, you can't help but consider the coincidence. The fact that a man this close to Lee Ochi, even if only geographically, was convicted of a crime against a young girl around the same place, around the same time. What are the odds in early 90s Tupelo, Mississippi? Now, if this were a court of law, we would no doubt be told not to take mere coincidence into consideration. Short of any real evidence, even circumstantial evidence, there would be no real case against Oscar Kearns. Personally, I have often thought to myself that life is a series of odd coincidences. Is that just me? Or does it happen to everyone all the time? 
The voice coming through the sound system in your car says, I love Italian food. You look to your right, and the 18-wheeler running next to you says, Italian Stallion, along the side of the trailer. Maybe you speak to someone to whom you haven't spoken in years. The very next day, someone asks you when you last spoke to that person. Just weird stuff. Does it mean anything? What was the last really weird coincidence that you experienced? The only thing that I can think of right now is a couple weeks ago we had a going away party and somebody brought those little pinwheel things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's got the cream cheese and they roll it up in the tortilla and then they slice them. And I was talking about how good they were. And then I went back to my desk and I got on Facebook and on the side of Facebook, there was a recipe for pinwheels. Let's see, I was sitting in my truck. This is when I had my old Toyota truck. Sitting in my truck one day. It was a nice, warm, beautiful, sunny day. And driving down the road, actually driving down Main Street Tupelo, and I noticed there was a moth in my truck fluttering around in there. And I thought, well, if I leave the moth in here, it's going to die. I know that's stupid. It's just a moth. But I thought... I'm going to pull off the side of the road, roll the window down, shoo it out, and save its life. So I roll the, I pull off the road, roll the window down, and I see the moth flutter out the window, out across the field, and I'm watching it. And as it flutters away, a bird swoops down and grabs it out of the air. <laughs> and that is the honest-to-goodness, god-awful truth right there. There's this weird number that keeps reoccurring in my life. It's the number 38. Just so happens that that is the year that my husband's father was born. So this number shows up on car tags. This number shows up, of course, on the clock. When you look at the clock, it'll be like 1038 or 138 or whatever. Um, one strange occurrence, and this happened back in 2016, and that's the year that he passed away, January that year. I woke up in the morning, and it was like 2.38 a.m. Like, that's just randomly wake up. I don't do that. I normally sleep all night long. I started school semester at ICC when I moved up here. The number 38 was in my student ID number, like at the very end. So the first time that I shared this story with uh, my husband's kids, we were traveling, going down the road, because that's when I see the number a lot. I'm on the road with my job a lot. And we were going down the road, and I was telling them about it. We passed this 18-wheeler. I get out the kind of story and tell them about it. And he and um, his son says, did you just see the number on that truck back there? I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, on the, like, cab of the truck. So I slowed back down, go back and look, and it's on the cab of the truck. So then when we pass, um his daughter my husband's daughter who's sitting in the back seat said the number's on the front tag of that truck as well weird the two months after my daughter's leukemia diagnosis i stayed with her in minnesota where she's receiving treatment after her first round of chemo she was released from the hospital to spend a respite at the Ronald McDonald House, 
It's an excellent resource and temporary home for patients, by the way. And there were a lot of families there facing battles similar to the one in which we are still engaged. One young girl I noticed early on. Based on her appearance, I thought she had been born with a lot of physical problems. She was friendly, gentle, kind, seemed to be comfortable in her skin. But her facial features were misaligned. Eventually, I made conversation with her and her family. The girl, I'll refer to as Jane, volunteered information, even though I never asked anything about her issues or how she was being treated at the hospital. Here's what Jane told me. She's had a lot of surgeries and is about to have another that will be an attempt to reconstruct her jaw. She used to have terrible headaches, but doesn't have them anymore. She was not born with her problems. A few years ago, she was involved in a farming equipment accident. She was caught underneath a large tractor and it rolled over her head. She technically died twice. Jane looked into my eyes and told me she was seven when she died. She remembers that she went to heaven and they sent her back to help other kids with problems like hers. That was an intensely powerful moment there in the upstairs living room of the Ronald McDonald house, friends. I was so mesmerized that the coincidence didn't hit me until a little while later. In this series, the first player in the Leochi story introduced was paranormal advisor Jeanette Lucas. If you don't recall... I was about seven or eight-ish, and, um, but at the same time, I also had a near-death experience, and um, I literally got to go to heaven and come right back and they told me they wanted me to find missing persons, especially children. Listen, you can believe what you want to believe about my meeting a little girl with an eerily similar story to Jeanette's. You can believe what you want to believe about a convicted child rapist's connection to Leochi. But whether you're skeptical or a believer or a doubter, whether you believe in God, or magic, or an afterlife, or nothing but the here and now, the items Lauren Ochi uncovers about Oscar Kearns in our next episode are due for consideration. on iTunes, leaving a review or a rating. Thanks.